I am excited to be here again this morning. It's, it is a blessing to be able to come and study the Word together. If you would find Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20 in your Bibles, that'll be our text this morning. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16 through the end of the book. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Y'all, what are we doing here? Like, why does this church even exist? Why does any church exist? If you asked a random selection of evangelical Christians in our society, what is the purpose of the church? The answers you received would probably be some good answers, but mostly miss the main point. Some would argue, well, the church is about relationships. A church exists to give Christians a means to fulfill the, the one-anotherness that we've talked about in recent weeks. The loving fellowship of church members is good, but it is not our primary purpose. Some would have a, a loftier view and say that the church exists as a means to worship, right? We have a church so that we can assemble together in praise and worship of our God and Savior Jesus Christ in a corporate setting. And y'all, humble worship is good, but it is not our primary purpose. Some would say maybe the church exists for the purpose of learning. After all, the point of Sunday school lessons and of Biblical messages is that we join together around Scripture in order to learn the Word of God. This is our source of faith and practice. And learning is good. But learning is not our primary purpose. In fact, we are not learning just for the sake of learning. In fact, everything we learn, everything we believe is to be put into practice, into active service of the Lord Jesus. Some view the church as a social service agency, right? The church is an organization that, well, it, it reaches out into the community, showing the love and mercy of the Lord Jesus by expressions of kindness and expressions of charity. Y'all, community activism is good. But a church has failed when it thinks that giving charitably fulfills its purpose because you can give someone groceries and pay their utility bill without ever giving them what it is that they need the most. All of these things are good. And in fact, all of those 
should be characteristics of the Lord's churches as they follow the Bible's commands for the Christian community, right? Loving fellowship, humble worship, purposeful learning, charitable kindness, those things should be marks of the Lord's church. They are all good, but none of them are primary. The primary calling of the Lord's church is to fulfill the great commission which is given in our text this morning. Our goal this morning will be to see the final words in Matthew's gospel record the great commission, the command in which the Lord Jesus requires his church to submit to his authority, to declare his gospel, and rejoice in his presence. These final words of Matthew's gospel are in fact the climactic point of the entire book that he has written. He's been building up to this point since the beginning of his gospel. John MacArthur refers to this text as, quote, the climax and major focal point, not only of this gospel, but of the entire New Testament. It's not an exaggeration to say that in the broadest sense, it's the focal point of all scripture. The entire point of Matthew's gospel up to this text has been to prove that the Lord Jesus is king. He began with a genealogy proving that Jesus has right to be king. He continued through the ministry of Jesus, showing how he's the complete fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about a Messiah king. In Matthew chapter 10, the Lord Jesus gathers his disciples and he sends them out. Actually, Matthew 10 is what I like to call a pre-existing commission because he sends out his disciples and specifically tells them in Matthew 10, you only go to the household of Israel and declare the kingdom of heaven under the authority of Messiah King Jesus. And now in our text, having secured salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus expands that commission to his church by telling them to now take that message out to all nations, reaching them with the gospel. This is the great commission. When we ask, what are we doing here? Why why does this church exist? This has to be our answer. There's a lot else that we're called to do, right? Fellowship and worship and and learning and serving. But we'll even see in this text that all of those things are subservient to this because all of them are explicitly contained in this great commission as a portion of it. This commission is the church's highest calling. So again, the great commission is the command in which the Lord Jesus requires his church to submit to his authority, declare his gospel, and rejoice in his presence. This has to be, even though it is the final command, it is our highest priority. And so we'll examine it this morning in those three areas. First, I want you to see the church is called to submit to the authority of King Jesus. Submit to the authority of King Jesus. Now, to to sort of set the scene for a moment, Matthew is very brief in presenting his post-resurrection commentary in his gospel. 
right? The resurrections just occurred at the beginning of this chapter. The Lord Jesus has already been betrayed and arrested and condemned and crucified. Two disciples named Joseph and Nicodemus had appealed to be allowed to take his body and bury him in Joseph's family tomb. After three days, the tomb was miraculously opened. It was found empty, confirming that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a historical fact. And when that happens at the beginning of this chapter, what I like to get beautiful chaos erupts among the disciples in Jerusalem. The risen from the dead Jesus appeared to many of them. Now each of the four Gospels tells some different portions of that story. Matthew only focuses on the experience of the the women who found the tomb empty. Up in verses 5 through 7, you can see an angel invites them into the empty tomb, orders them to go back and tell the other disciples what they've seen, And on their way back to tell the other disciples what they've seen, in verses 9 and 10, the Lord Jesus himself appears to them along the way as they went. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, look at that. Chapter 28, verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. There is this confirmed plan that the disciples of Jesus are to meet him in Galilee, in the northern region of Israel. And while verse 10 doesn't tell us the specific place in Galilee that they're to meet him, our text does show us that there was a specific place. Look at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. They knew where it was exactly that they were supposed to go. Verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. If you want to picture this, I would encourage you not to visualize it as only the 11 most prominent disciples being present on that mountain. Right, Matthew, Matthew notes the 11, right? There had been 12, but Judas has already done his deceitful work and he's dead and gone. So now there's the 11 remaining. We know from the other gospels that those 11 actually had already seen the Lord Jesus before this in the upper room in Jerusalem. In fact, even though one of them, Thomas, doubted, the Lord Jesus alleviated his doubts by appearing to Thomas and saying, go ahead and feel the wounds in my hands and my side and believe. Don't doubt, but believe. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that there was a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to over 500 individuals at one time. And I think this might be it. Matthew is only focused on the 11 disciples and tells us that they fell down and worshipped him, but some there did not do it right away. Some of the gathered disciples doubted. Although, I want you to understand, the word doubted here 
can also mean something more like to be uncertain or to be hesitant, right? It's probably wise to show them a little bit of situational compassion here. As they're standing, seeing this figure coming up the mountain to them, recognizing it as Jesus, they're probably thinking, am I imagining this? Is that really Jesus? We've heard that he's alive, but how is it that he could really be alive? Should I, at this point, fall down and worship him because he has not ever asked for that before? Y'all, I love that Matthew shows us this before he records the commands of Jesus. If the success for this great commission rests on the strength of these doubt-filled, uncertain, hesitating disciples, then the commission is absolutely certain to fail. Yet those disciples gathered there on that Galilean hillside, the assembly, the, the church that is there, is the group to whom the Lord Jesus is going to give this authoritative command. So just picture them there. Some worshiping, some doubtful, some hesitating, but all of them are about to encounter the authoritative presence of the Lord Jesus. Because verse 18, Matthew says, Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. So Jesus approaches these disciples, some of them wondering, some of them worshiping, and his answer to both the wonder and to the worship is to assert his sovereign authority. Now we need to focus here in verse 18 on that word power for a few moments. This is one of those places where to achieve a full understanding, we really kind of need to dig into this, the meaning of this word in the original language because this word in the original language is exousia. And there is no single English word that's going to tell you everything that this word means. Exousia is describing possessing both the ability and the right to perform and accomplish your will. And so some translations here will use the word power, describing the ability of Jesus to do what he wants. Some here will use the word authority to describe the right of Jesus to do what he wants. But the word that Jesus used is exousia, and it is both. It is both the right and the ability. It is both the power and the authority. Perhaps I'll explain it this way. There might have been a time in your life where it was within your ability to do what you wanted. It was within your ability to get your own way. But you also knew that getting your own way was not the right thing to do. In that situation, you had the power, but you didn't have the authority. Or there might have been some time where you knew what was right and you even had the uh, permission to do what was right, but you lacked the actual ability to perform what it is was right and in that case you had the authority but you didn't have the power 
This is a claim by the Lord Jesus to complete sovereignty. He has all ability and authority. He can do what he wants, and he has the right to do what he wants. Now understand, when we talk about the Great Commission, the Great Commission is actually found in verses 19 and 20. Verse 18 is not the commission. When Jesus says, all power and authority is given to me in heaven and earth, that is a claim, that is not a command. But he's about to make a command, and the command of Jesus in verses 19 and 20 rests squarely on whether or not the claim of Jesus in verse 18 is true. When he gets to the commission, he even says in verse 19, go ye therefore, right? I've tried to drum into you. The word therefore means because of that. Well, because of what? Because all power and authority rests in Jesus because King Jesus has both the right to command you and the ability to command you. He commands you, because of that, go. He has both the right to issue orders to the church, and praise God, he has the ability to execute those orders. To these hesitant, doubt-filled disciples who otherwise would never be able to fulfill this command for his glory. History is filled with Rulers and politicians who assume authority and give commands, right? Commands to which they had real, really no right to issue and which their people had no real ability to carry out. But our king has not only got the right to command us, he has the ability to empower us. I mean, will there ever be a task that the Lord Jesus calls us to do, which falls outside of his power and authority? Well, let's look at how much power and authority Jesus claims, right? All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. All power, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And we can do, we can dig into a a fun Greek word study on that little word all for a moment, but I'll tell you after considerable study and contemplation the word all means all it's all it's all of it right there is no power that supersedes the power of king jesus there's no authority that is over the authority of the lord jesus not only does he make this claim of all he says it has been given to him meaning god the father has invested jesus with that power and authority, and he even goes so far as to claim a massive jurisdiction, right? All power is given me in heaven and in earth. You may remember in Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 22, the Apostle Paul says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. A church 
is to be filled with disciples of the Lord Jesus who not only believe in his death, burial, and resurrection for their salvation, but also submit to his sovereign authority over all things in heaven, all things in earth, all things seen, everything unseen, everything that has happened, all things that are happening, and all things which he will bring to pass in the future for his own glory. Throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus proved he has unparalleled authority. He has authority over creation so that he can cause fig trees to fade and command storms to shut up. He has the authority over deformities so that he can heal a man who had a withered hand. He can make lame men to walk on strong legs and feet. He has authority over disease so that lepers are healed and and dying children are restored to their parents whole. He has authority over demons so that they can't even possess a bunch of pigs without him giving them permission to do it. He has authority over death. So not only could he draw people back from the dominion of the grave, he went to the grave in person, defeated death himself, and promised everlasting life to everyone who believes in him. And so he has authority over your life. Paul says in Colossians 1 that the Lord Jesus is the creator of all things, that all things were created by him, all things were created for him. He is preeminent over all things, and he's the one through which all things consist. Literally all things are held together by the Lord Jesus. Do not make the mistake of thinking as so many other people do today. I have made Jesus Lord of my life. You have not. As if you could. He is Lord of your life. In fact, you can... If you can sympathize at all with those disciples on the hillside in Galilee who were looking at the Lord Jesus and being filled with their own doubts and hesitations, then you know he was not about to walk up that mountain to them and ask them to make him anything. He goes up that mountain and he asserts his own authority. This is King Jesus and his jurisdiction is over all heaven and all earth. He has all the power and authority he needs to give commands. There's no higher authority to which you can appeal his decisions. This commanding presence of King Jesus leaves us with no alternative except for every knee in heaven and earth to bow and every tongue to confess that he is Lord. The Great Commission begins with the expectation that the church will submit to the authority of King Jesus. Second, follow the orders of King Jesus. Jesus asserted his authority in such a way that there is no question that he has the right and ability to issue commands to his church. Remember, Verse 18 is the claim of Jesus. The commands of Jesus, which follow in verses 19 and 20, 
rest on his claim of authority. And here are his commands, verse 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now we need to analyze this sentence structure for just a moment. If you are prone to writing in your Bibles at all, I would highly recommend you circle that word teach in verse 19. Because the word teach in verse 19 is a completely different word than the word teaching in verse 20. In verse 19, that word teach means to make disciples. And in fact, that is the main action word for these verses. It is the main action word of this commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Then, having made disciples, he says, baptize them. Well, baptize who? Obviously, it's baptize the disciples, right? Not infants. It certainly does not say that baptizing someone is how you make them a disciple. They have to be made disciples, and then you baptize the disciples. You declare the gospel of Jesus, making the disciples, and you baptize those who become disciples, and then, he says, teach them or instruct them how to observe all things I have commanded. Now, we need to talk about each one of those three areas of that command. Following the orders of Jesus requires us to go disciple-making, baptizing, and teaching. Disciple-making is the work the Lord Jesus has commanded his church to do, right? Churchianity is overflowing with Christians who think that attending church is the high mark of the call of Jesus. That being in church is the end all, be all of righteous behavior. And again, church attendance is good. In fact, it is more vital than I think we consider it to be. But we need to stop thinking about Christianity as, well, you become a disciple and then come sit in the assembly with other disciples. The Lord Jesus' final command to the church was not come sit with the disciples. It was go make disciples. In fact, Jesus says make disciples of all nations. Remember, we talked about Matthew 10. He's taking that commission where he told them only go to the household of Israel. And now he's taking that pre-existing commission and he's expanding it to all nations. The good news of Jesus is extended to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. So declare the gospel to all the nations, he says. This, of course, fits with what Scripture has been saying long before this. Right? All the way back in Genesis, Yahweh made a promise to Abraham that in your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we see the culmination of that later in in Revelation chapter 5, where the song is that you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tribe and language and nation. 
And so the gospel is God's program for the nations. So go tell the nations. Now, I know everybody probably thinking, well, I don't think my call is to mission work. I don't think I need to go to, you know, the rainforests of South America. I don't know that that's my calling. And it's not everyone's calling. Not everyone is called to go to some faraway foreign mission field, though you should genuinely ask whether or not that is what the Lord has in his will for your life. But think of it this way. Here we are this morning. We are on the other side of the world from that Galilean hillside where Jesus spoke these words. Right? You are, in fact, out there in the nations right now So tell the nations. At the very least, tell your neighbor, and by telling your neighbor, you will be spreading the gospel to the nations. Make disciples of all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Do not limit it to the people that you are comfortable with. If you think the gospel is best suited to work for people who look like you and talk like you and dress like you, then your good news isn't all that good. The good news the Lord has left for the church is to declare that the Lord Jesus has redeemed sinners by his blood from all kinds of people in all kinds of places. He has sovereign power and authority over all people in all places. And he commands his disciples to declare the gospel in all those places. So let me put this to you as bluntly as I can. As a member of the Lord's church, you are called to make disciples. You are called to spread the gospel, to tell people the good news about Jesus. You are either obeying the authority of Jesus or you are rejecting the authority of Jesus. You are either doing that and thereby fulfilling his command or you are not sharing the gospel and you are denying that he has the right to give you commands at all. And while we can all admit that declaring the gospel can at times be scary or uncomfortable or my favorite word young people use nowadays, awkward. Let the claim of Jesus in verse 18 comfort you. He has all power and authority in heaven and earth. Understand when he says it's in heaven and in earth, That is not just making a a claim about the geographical jurisdiction of his power and authority. He's not just saying over where he has power and authority. He's talking about over whom he has power and authority. So he has the authority over you to command you to make disciples. He has authority over the people that you talk to. So your words are more than just an appeal from your heart. They are a command from their sovereign king. He has authority over every demonic being which might assert itself to discourage your task. And he has authority over every angelic being he might use to empower the work that you're called to do. In short, your greatest challenge in declaring the gospel comes when you lose sight of the power and authority of Jesus and you focus on your own feelings about it instead. It's not about you. (laughs) 
go make disciples of Jesus. We also have to go baptizing. When people hear the good news and they trust in Jesus, we baptize them. Submitting to the gospel is what makes a disciple. Submitting to baptism is what marks a disciple. Baptism is that ritual that has, it points to a greater reality. The baptism of a believer identifies them with the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. So later on, when, when, when Pastor Andrew performs this symbolic ritual this afternoon, he's going to use this formula that the Lord Jesus commands, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to think about this for a moment because those aren't just giving us sort of a a verbal formula so Pastor Andrew is going to have something to say. It's specified by the Lord Jesus for important reasons. The first reason is one you might not have thought of before. Since we're not first century Jews and (coughs) we're not thinking of disciple making the way that first century Jews would have been thinking about disciple making, The goal of making disciples in their day was to become like the person you were made a disciple of. So if you picture this in practice, a rabbi got his training and he went out on his ministry and he's he's teaching people and, and he would attract disciples. And those disciples would follow this rabbi watching how he lives and learning what he taught so that they could become like him. And then, of course, the intent is that someday they would sort of graduate and themselves become the rabbi and go out and make disciples of themselves who would learn how to be like them. But here in the Great Commission, the Lord is clear that the disciples of Jesus, we don't ever get to replace him. Disciples of Jesus are to make more disciples of Jesus. So when we declare the gospel and make a disciple and we baptize them, we baptize them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Spirit. We're not creating disciples of Jason or disciples of Andrew. There is a bigger reality here. This really explains, I think, why the Apostle Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. And actually, the church at Corinth, when the, when the church at Corinth started dividing up into factions and some were saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I am of Cephas. You know what Paul's response to that was? I thank God that I can say I didn't baptize any of you. Nobody is going to comp- co- complain and say that I have created disciples of Paul. Disciples of Jesus make more disciples of Jesus. And that's what we are saying when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Another reason why we use those words is that baptism is recognition that all three members of the Godhead are active participants in your salvation. Every person saved by faith after hearing the gospel are saved because God the Father has chosen them to salvation God the Son redeemed them with his blood, and God the Holy Spirit gave them life and drew them to faith. Baptism is that act in which believers identify themselves with that glorious gospel of Jesus, his 
death, burial, and resurrection, our death of our old self and to be raised to walk in new life with him. Jesus here says that's a statement that is to involve all three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus goes on to command teaching, making disciples and baptizing disciples is not the complete fulfillment of the Great Commission. It is only a part of it. In fact, faith in Jesus and being baptized is just an initiation into this lifelong process of becoming a better disciple of Jesus, one who is more like Jesus. Baptism is not your graduation into Christianity. Baptism is your enrollment into the program. You got to learn after that. Back in the introduction, I asked, what's the purpose of the church? Why does it exist? And primarily, it's to fulfill the Great Commission. And the reason the commission is primary is because included in the commission is learning to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Loving fellowship, humble worship, purposeful learning, charitable kindness. Yes, Jesus taught all those things. They're included as a part of what we have to teach. They're included as a part of what each of us still needs to learn. This command, teaching them, is the third part of the commission. Or we could say it like this. Go make disciples, baptize the disciples, and then disciple the disciples. Y'all, that's not easy, and it's not something that happens quick. So, please listen to me for a minute. Because if we are honest with ourselves, this is not something that our church does well. This is something that we have struggled with. We've seen people who declare their faith in Jesus, get baptized, and then soon it's like, where are they? They're not following him. Why aren't they following him? Soon enough, we're going to continue in this series on church membership and talk about church discipline and how that is necessary. When, when, when is it that church members need to be told that their refusal to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded has actually placed them outside of his assembly. But if you listen to the word discipline and the word disciple, you'll recognize they've got a lot in common with each other. It's almost an inverse relationship. The more discipling you do well, the less discipline you're going to find is necessary. No new believer, even one who has grown up in the church, no new believer will know instinctively what it means to live a Christian life. It is our responsibility to make sure that they learn, right, that we are teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded so that they can obey those commands of Jesus. That is not going to be effectively accomplished by nailing a five-paragraph document on the wall and just pointing them to it. 
It's not going to be accomplished in a you know, several week confirmation class. It's not even going to be completed in weekly 45 minute sermons. Although understand, we, we do need that. We do need this kind of learning. We need to sit and learn from the consistent and comprehensive teaching of God's word in the assembly on a regular basis. But that is a long haul process. In the short term, discipleship requires your involvement in the life of believers, right? Newly made disciples, newly baptized disciples need to be discipled by mature Christians in the faith. They do not know by instinct how to follow and observe the commands of Jesus. They need to see it in the lives of people who have been doing it a little longer than they have. We need to be actively involved in making disciples, baptizing those disciples, and then discipling those disciples. If we truly submit to the authority of King Jesus, then we will follow the orders of King Jesus. And then, third, and y'all, I love this. Third, rejoice in the presence of King Jesus. So pick, just start at verse 18 again. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. You can well imagine how these hesitant, doubtful disciples, not yet even fully confident in the resurrection of Jesus, would hear these commands that Jesus is giving and be like, this is overwhelming. Well, I'm not even confident in him yet, and I'm supposed to go tell the whole world about him. But the good news is the one giving the commands not only has the authority to issue that directive, He's also got the ability to accomplish it in our lives. He has not left us alone to do this work because he has not left us alone. I am with you always. Now again, I want to remind you that Matthew, as the the Holy Spirit has inspired him to pen this gospel, he has been building up to this climactic finish. From the very first chapter, he has been foreshadowing this ending. The Gospel of Matthew, and you can look at the first chapter if you want to, the Gospel of Matthew begins with that genealogy of Messiah King Jesus. And before you even get out of chapter 1, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him, Matthew 1 verse 20, While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, that is Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And at that point, the angel is done speaking, but Matthew inserts commentary. 
He says in verse 22, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, this is the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. So Matthew opens this gospel by asserting this, this Jesus who brings salvation to his people. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And by the time we get to the end of the gospel, he's reassuring us the promise of Jesus is that he is always with us. Matter of fact, Hebrews 13.5 tells us we have great confidence and contentment in the one who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matter of fact, just, just look at the alls in our text. Right, in this commission, I have all authority. So you go out and make disciples of all nations. Make sure to teach them all things that I've commanded you. And I will be with you all the time. And this promise of the Lord Jesus goes beyond those people who are on their knees on that Galilean hillside. Right? He makes this promise of his presence to the end of the world or uh, literally the end of the age. Not one of those people survived to the end of the world. The promise being made by Jesus is to that assembly. His assembly, his churches, are always going to have his presence. You know, the way he begins that all power is given to me all authority is given to me, that's going to seem like cold comfort if the command that comes after that is like, you know, when my mom or dad said, now do it because I said so. But we don't only obey the command because King Jesus can command us in his power. He also promises to strengthen us with his presence. I am with you always. So the Lord Jesus is with you when you are way at college in the Ozark Mountains. The Lord Jesus is with you when you start your first day of your first job. He's with you when you end your last day before retirement. The Lord Jesus is with you when you are laying in an MRI machine in Chicago. He's the presence of Jesus will go with you into those waters of baptism. And when you rise out of them to walk in a new life, every day you live that life, observing his commands for his glory, he is with you. He possesses all power, all authority to command us to go to all kinds of people, in all kinds of places. He has charged us to make disciples, baptize those disciples, and then disciple those disciples, teaching them how to observe his commands. And he has promised us the comfort of his presence at all times in all places because he's got all power and authority at all times in all places. And we will never feel the presence of the Lord Jesus more keenly than when we are actively obeying his commission, his charge to the church. 
submitting to the authority of King Jesus, obeying the orders of King Jesus, and rejoicing in the presence of King Jesus. Okay. We're going to pray, and then we'll sing a, a, a closing hymn. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we trust that it accomplishes your purpose in us. Our prayer, Lord, is that if we have heard from you clearly that you would empower us as your church to live faithfully, that you would make your word effective in us, that you would make the love for Jesus active in us, that you would make the good news of salvation go out through us. Lord, use us for your glory, that people would hear the gospel, that they would believe in Jesus, that they would be saved by faith in his name and help us to be better disciples. Lord, help us to be active in making better disciples. And Lord, forgive us where we fail you. Help us to bring glory and honor to your son. We ask this in his name. Amen.